Hello, everyone, and welcome to Great Souls, Great Stories presented by The Seagull Project. We are a short story podcast bringing you the best of literature, read by a bevy of professional actors. And I'm your host, Gavin Reeb, artistic director of The Seagull Project and lover of literature. More than 10 years ago, we began this series as a testament to the incredible body of writing, especially the short stories, of Anton Chekhov. It was not just a way to share all his fantastic tales, but also a way for our audience to get to know him better. Fast forward to two years ago when we decided to up this spotlight by celebrating Chekhov's birthday by releasing his work for free to you all. And this year... We have the pleasure of sharing a story that we have never performed, live, or in this podcast. At Home, by Anton Chekhov. Now, before diving into it, I want to say that we are also using this birthday celebration to raise money for our upcoming year. This is going to be the most important year yet for the Seagull Project, and we need your help to meet our goals. We are raising... $2,500 around the release of this podcast and our birthday celebrations, and we hope you consider lending a hand. No donation is too small, and you can find a link wherever you found this podcast. Just think of it like the ticket price to listen or a gift to the memory of the great Dr. Chekhov. Instead of my normal commentary of social and political themes to set up this episode, we are going to dig into the real purpose of this release, a birthday celebration. Don't worry, I won't be singing happy birthday. Instead, a little toast. As I record this, it's pretty early in the morning, so I'll raise up my coffee, but you can toast with whatever beverage feels appropriate. To Anton Chekhov on his 163rd birthday. You often spoke of how you would be forgotten. I hope you know that, for once, you were wrong. And there are many of us, more than you could ever dream of, that hold your stories and your soul close to our chest. Because you achieved something you never thought possible. Something that, if I told you, you would make some glib remark about how Even a dumb dog's wayward bark can scare the wolves, or something, and saunter off into your garden to tend to your greenery. I think this is why you still resonate so strongly, because it is exactly this response that feels so contemporary, so human, and so enchanting. Thank you for building the roof over our heads and for trying to solve the sickness of our hearts even when you, yourself, knew it impossible. For you understood the silly truths that make us human. That, as you say in this story, medicine must be sweet, and truth must be beautiful. And your truth has brought more beauty into this world than you would ever believe. Happy 163rd birthday, Chekhov. Thanks for tuning in and celebrating with us, folks. Without further ado, here is At Home by Anton Chekhov, as read by Rob Burgess. (laughs) 
Somebody came from the Gregorius to fetch a book, but I said you were not at home. The postman has brought the newspapers and two letters. And, by the way, sir, I wish you would give your attention to Seriotza. I saw him smoking today, and also day before yesterday. When I told him how wrong it was, he put his fingers in his ears, as he always does, and began to sing loudly so as to drown my voice. Evgeny Bikoski, an attorney of the circuit court, who had just come home from a session and was taking off his gloves in his study, looked at the governess who was making this statement and laughed. So, Seriotsa has been smoking, he said with a shrug of his shoulders. Fancy the little tyke with a cigarette in his mouth. How old is he? Seven years old. It seems of small consequence to you, but at his age, smoking is a bad, a harmful habit, and bad habits should be nipped in the bud. You are absolutely right. Where does he get the tobacco? From your table. <laughs> he does. In that case, send him to me. When the governess had gone, Bukowski sat down in an easy chair before his writing table and began to think. For some reason, he pictured to himself his Seriotsa enveloped in clouds of tobacco smoke, with a huge, yard-long cigarette in his mouth, and this caricature made him smile. At the same time, the earnest, anxious face of the governess awakened in him memories of days long past and half-forgotten when smoking at school and in the nursery aroused in masters and parents a strange, almost incomprehensible horror. It really was horror. Children were unmercifully flogged and expelled from school, and their lives were blighted, although not one of the teachers, nor fathers, knew exactly what constituted the harm and offense of smoking. Even very intelligent people did not hesitate to combat the vice they did not understand. Bukowski called to mind the principal of his school, a highly educated, good-natured old man, who was so shocked when he caught a scholar with a cigarette that he would turn pale and immediately summon a special meeting of the school board and sentence the offender to expulsion. No doubt that is one of the laws of society. The less an evil is understood, the more bitterly and harshly is it attacked. The attorney thought of the two or three boys who had been expelled, and of their subsequent lives, and could not but reflect that punishment is, in many cases, more productive of evil than crime itself. The living organism possesses the faculty of quickly adapting itself to every condition. If it were not so, man would be conscious every moment of the unreasonable foundations on which his reasonable actions rest, and of how little justice and assurance are to be found even in those activities which are fraught with so much responsibility and which are so appalling in their consequences, such as education, literature, the law. And thoughts such as these came floating into Bukowski's head, light evanescent thoughts, such as only enter weary, resting brains. One knows not whence they are, nor why they come. They stay but a short while, and seem to spread across the surface of the brain, without ever sinking very far into its depths. For those whose minds for hours and days together are forced to be occupied with business and to travel always along the same lines, these homelike, untrammeled musings bring a sort of comfort and a pleasant restfulness of their own. It was nine o'clock. On the floor overhead, someone was pacing up and down, and still, higher up, 
On the third story, four hands were playing scales on the piano. The person who was pacing the floor seemed, from his nervous strides, to be the victim of tormenting thoughts, or of the toothache. His footsteps and the monotonous scales added to the quiet of the evening something somnolent that predisposed the mind to idle revelries. In the nursery, two rooms away, Seriotza and his governess were talking. Papa has come, sang the boy. Papa has come. Pa, papa. Votre père vous appelle. Allez vite, cried the governess, twittering like a frightened bird. What shall I say to him, thought Bukowski. But before he had time to think of anything to say, his son, Seriotza, had already entered the study. This was a little person whose sex could only be divined from his clothes. He was so delicate and fair and frail. His body was as languid as a hothouse plant, and everything about him looked wonderfully dainty and soft. His movements, his curly hair, his glance, his velvet tunic. Good evening, papa, he said in a gentle voice, climbing on to his father's knee, and swiftly kissing his neck. Did you send for me? Wait a bit, wait a bit, master, answered the lawyer, putting him aside. Before you and I kiss each other, we must have a talk, a serious talk. I am angry with you, and I don't love you any more. Do you understand that, young man? I don't love you, and you are no son of mine. Seriotza looked steadfastly at his father, and then turned his regard to the table and shrugged his shoulders. What have I done? he asked, perplexed and blinked. I, I didn't go into your study once today, and I haven't touched a thing. Miss Natalie has just been complaining to me that you have been smoking. Is that so? Have you been smoking? Uh, yes. I smoked once. That is so. There! So! Now you have told a lie into the bargain, said the lawyer, disguising his smile by a frown. Miss Natalie saw you smoking twice. That means you have been caught doing three naughty things. Smoking, taking tobacco that doesn't belong to you off my table, and telling a lie. Three accusations. Oh, yes, Seriotza remembered, and his eyes smiled. That, that is true, true. I did smoke twice, today and one other time. There, you see, so it was twice and not once. I am very, very displeased with you. You used to be a good boy, but now I see you have grown bad and naughty. Bukowski straightened Seriotza's little collar and thought, what shall I say to him next? Yes, it was very wrong, he went on. I did not expect this of you. For one thing, you have no right to take tobacco that doesn't belong to you. People only have a right to use their own things. If a man takes other people's things, he, he is bad. That isn't what I ought to say to him, thought Bukowski. For instance, Miss Natalie has a trunk with dresses in it. That trunk belongs to her, and we, that is, you and I, must not dare to touch it, because it isn't ours. You have your little horses and your pictures. I don't take them, do I? Perhaps I should like to, but they are not mine, they are yours. You can take them if you want to, said Seriotza, raising his eyebrows. Don't mind, Papa, you may have them. The little yellow dog that is on your table is mine, but I don't care if it stays there. You don't understand me, said Bukowski. You made me a present of that little dog. It belongs to me now, 
and I can do what I like with it, but I didn't give you the tobacco. The tobacco belongs to me. I'm not explaining it to him right, thought the lawyer. Not right at all. If I want to smoke tobacco that isn't mine, I must first get permission to do so. And so, slowly coupling sentence to sentence and counterfeiting the speech of a child, Bukowski went on to explain to his son the meaning of possession. Sariotz's eyes rested on his father's chest, and he listened attentively. He liked to converse with his father in the evening. Then he rested his elbows on the edge of the table, and, half-closing his near-sighted eyes, began contemplating the paper and the inkstand. His glance roamed across the table and was arrested by a bottle of glue. Papa, what is glue made of? he suddenly asked, raising the bottle to his eyes. Bukowski took the bottle away from him and put it where it belonged, and continued, In the next place, you have been smoking. That is very naughty indeed. If I smoke, it does not mean that smoking is good. When I smoke, I know it is a stupid thing to do, and I'm angry with myself and blame myself for doing it. Ugh, what a wily teacher I am, thought the lawyer. Tobacco is very bad for the health and men who smoke die sooner than they should. It is especially bad to smoke when one is as little as you are. Your chest is weak. You've not grown strong yet, and tobacco smoke gives weak people consumption and other diseases. Your Uncle Ignatius died of consumption. If he hadn't smoked, he might have been living today. Sariotza looked thoughtfully at the lamp, touched the shade with his finger, and sighed. Uncle Ignatius used to play the violin, he said. The Gregorius have his violin now. Seriotza again leaned his elbows on the edge of the table and became lost in thought. From the expression fixed on his pale features, he seemed to be listening to something or to be intent on the unfolding of his own ideas. Sadness and something akin to fear appeared in his great unblinking eyes. He was probably thinking of death, which such a little while ago had taken away his mother and his uncle Ignatius. Death carries mothers and uncles away to another world, and their children and violins stay behind on earth. Dead people live in heaven somewhere near the stars, and from there they look down upon the earth. Can they bear the separation? What shall I say to him, thought Bukowski. He isn't listening. It is obvious that he doesn't attach any importance to his offense or to my arguments. What can I say to touch him? The lawyer rose and walked about the study. In my day, these questions were settled with singular simplicity, he reflected. If the youngster was caught smoking, he was thrashed. This would, indeed, make a poor-spirited, cowardly boy give up smoking. But a clever and plucky one would carry his tobacco in his boot after the whipping and smoke in an outhouse. When he was caught in the outhouse and whipped again, he would go down and smoke by the river and so on until the lad was grown up. My mother used to give me money and candy to keep me from smoking. These expedients now seem to us weak and immoral. Taking up a logical standpoint, the educator of today tries to instill the first principles of right into a child by helping him to understand them, and not by rousing his fear or his desire to distinguish himself and obtain a reward. While he was walking and meditating, Seriotza had climbed up and was standing with his feet on a chair by the side of the table and had begun to draw pictures. A pile of paper cut especially for him and a blue pencil lay on the table so that he should not scribble on any business papers or touch the ink. 
Cook cut her finger while she was chopping cabbage, he said, moving his eyebrows and drawing a house. She screamed so that we were all frightened and ran into the kitchen. <laughs> she was so silly. Miss Natalie told her to dip her finger in cold water, but she would only suck it. How could she put her dirty finger in her mouth? Papa, that wasn't nice, was it? Then he went on to narrate how an organ grinder had come into the yard during dinner with a little girl who had sung and danced to the music. He has his own field of thought, the lawyer reflected. He has a little world of his own in his head and knows what, according to him, is important and what is not. One cannot cheat him of his attention and consciousness by simply aping his language. One must also be able to think in his fashion. He would have understood me perfectly had I really regretted the tobacco and been offended and, and burst into tears. That is why nothing can replace the mother in education, because she is able to feel and weep and laugh with her children. Nothing can be accomplished by logic and ethics. Well, what shall I say to him? What? And it seemed to Bukowski laughable and strange that an experienced student of justice like himself, who had spent half a lifetime in the study of every phase of the prevention and punishment of crime, should find himself completely at sea and unable to think of what to say to a boy. Listen, give me your word of honor that you won't smoke again, he said. Word of honor, sang Sariotza. Word of honor, ner, ner. word of honor. <laughs> I wonder if he knows what word of honor means, because he asks himself. No, I'm a bad teacher. If one of our educators or jurists could look into my head at this moment, he would call me a muddlehead and very likely accuse me of too much subtlety. But the fact is... All these confounded questions are settled so much more easily at school or in court than at home. Here, at home, one has to do with people whom one unreasoningly loves. And love is exacting and complicates things. If this child were my pupil or a prisoner at the bar instead of being my son, I would not be such a coward and my thoughts would not wander as they now do. Bukowski sat down at the table and drew toward him one of Seriotza's drawings. The picture represented a crooked-roofed little house, with smoke coming in zigzags like lightning out of the chimneys and rising to the edge of the paper. Near the house stood a soldier with dots for eyes and a bayonet that resembled the figure four. <laughs> a man cannot possibly be higher than a house, said the lawyer. See here? Your roof reaches up only to the soldier's shoulders. Seriotza climbed onto his father's lap and wriggled there a long time, trying to get himself comfortably settled. No, Papa, he said, contemplating his drawing. If you made the soldier little, his eyes wouldn't show. <laughs> what need was there to have corrected him? From daily observation of his son, the lawyer had become convinced that children, like savages, have their own artistic viewpoint and their own... The lawyer felt the child's breath on his face. The soft hair brushed his cheek, and warmth and tenderness crept into his heart as if his whole soul and not his hands alone were lying on the velvet of Seriotza's tunic. He looked into the boy's large dark eyes and seemed to see mother and wife and everything he had once loved gazing out of those wide pupils. How could one whip him, he thought. How could one bewilder him by punishment? No, we shouldn't pretend to know how to educate children. People used to be simpler. They thought less, and so decided their problems more boldly. But we think too much. 
we are eaten up by logic. The more enlightened a man is, the more he is given to reflection and hair-splitting, the more undecided he is, the more full of scruples, and the more timidly he approaches a task. And seriously considered, how much bravery, how much self-reliance must a man not have to undertake teaching or judging or writing a big book? The clock struck ten. Come, boy, time for bed, said the lawyer. Say good night and then go. No, papa, pouted Seriotza. I want to stay a little longer. Tell me something. Tell me a story. (laughs) Very well. But as soon as the story is told, off we go. On his free evenings, the lawyer was in the habit of telling Seriotza stories. Like most busy people, he did not know one piece of poetry by heart. Neither could he remember a single story, so he was forced to improvise something new every time. He generally took for his keynote, Once upon a time and then went on heaping one bit of innocent nonsense on another, not knowing, as he told the beginning, what the middle or the end would be. The scenes, the characters, and the situations he would seize at random, and the plot and the moral would trickle in of their own accord, independent of the will of the storyteller. Sariotza loved these improvisations, and the lawyer noticed the more modest and uncomplicated the plot turned out to be, the more deeply it affected the boy. Listen, he began raising his eyes to the ceiling. Um, Once upon a time, there lived an old, a very old king, who had a long gray beard and, and whiskers as long as this. Well, this king lived in a palace of crystal that sparkled and flashed in the sunlight like a great big block of pure ice. Palace, little son, stood in a great big garden. And in this garden, you know, there, there grew oranges, and bergamot pears, and wild cherry trees, and tulips, and roses, and lilies of the valley blossomed there, and bright-colored birds sang. Yes, and on the trees there hung little crystal bells that rang so sweetly when the wind blew that no one ever grew tired of listening to them. Crystal gives out a softer, sweeter tone than metal. Well, and what do you think? In that garden there were fountains. Don't you remember... You saw a fountain once at Aunt Sonia's summer house. Well, there were fountains just like that in the king's garden, only they were ever so much larger, and their spray reached right up to the tip of the highest poplar trees. Bukowski reflected an instant and continued. The old king had only one son who was heir to the kingdom, a little boy just as little as you are. He was a good boy. He was never capricious, and he went to bed early and he never touched anything on his father's table, and and was nice as he could be in every way. He only had one failing. He smoked. Seriotza was listening intently, looking steadily into his father's eyes. The lawyer thought to himself, How shall I go on? He ruminated for a long time, and then ended thus. Because he smoked, The king's son fell ill of consumption and died when he was twenty years old. The old man, decrepit and ill, was left without anyone to take care of him, and there was no one to govern the kingdom or to protect the palace. Foes came and killed the old man and destroyed the palace, and now there are no wild cherry trees left in the garden, no birds and no bells, and so sunny. An ending like this seemed to Bukowski artless and absurd. The whole tale had made a deep impression on Seriotza. Once more, sadness 
and something resembling terror crept into his eyes. He gazed for a minute at the dark window and said in a low voice, I won't smoke any more. When he had said good night and gone to bed, his father walked softly back and forth across the floor and smiled. It will be said that beauty and artistic form were the influences in this case, he mused. That may be so, but it is no consolation. After all, those are not genuine means of influence. <laughs> Why is it that morals and truth must not be presented in their raw state, but always in a mixture, sugar-coated and gilded like pills? It is not right. That sort of thing is falsification, trickery, deceit. He remembered the jurymen who invariably had to be harangued in an address, the public who could only assimilate history by means of legends and historical novels and poems. Hmm. Madison must be sweet. Truth must be beautiful. This has been man's folly since the days of Adam. Besides, it may all be quite natural, and perhaps it is as it should be. Nature herself has many tricks of expediency and many deceptions. He sat down to his work, but the idle domestic thoughts long continued to flit through his brain. The scales could no longer be heard overhead, but the dweller on the second floor continued to walk back and forth.